So in the Thursday Bible study, um, somebody brought a friend, and that friend, from hearing our conversation, who was, you know, a Christian, was doubting that they were a Christian. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like, you guys are talking. I don't know. So we, um, we made a hard right turn, and we started talking about things like that. But we didn't try to pray with her to, you know, to be born again. She was, she was pretty convinced that she probably wasn't actually a Christian, despite her response to a, um, an altar call at some point previously. As we were getting ready to leave, the last thing that we said to her was, you know, the thing that you need to be considering between now and the time we meet again to, to talk about the gospel is counting the cost. That you need to understand that relationship with God is based upon God's design. Not what you hear, not, you know, he loves you, yes. But but you really need to get a sense for count the cost. Well, she was on board. I mean, she was on board with everything we were saying. She had no fear. She had she had no, like, is that the thunder? I thought it was rubbing my chin or something. She was she was wonderfully humble. And then I gave her an example of from scripture of count the cost. And she liked to fall out of her chair. So we're going to share the gospel with her. And I'm sure she's going to get born again because the Lord is drawing that lady. But it's very important that she doesn't get a gospel that doesn't include counting the cost and understanding, having some understanding. So I was praying all week long because I have a sermon. I mean, I got a few. I mean, they're not put together yet. The last few weeks and, um, you know, something comes up, you know, the, the, the culture falls on its head again. And so I'm just waiting for it to be released to just, you know, which is a, it's nice for me because, you know, I don't have any stress during the week. I don't have much stress anymore over that anyway, but um, I was praying, is that what you want me to talk about? And I felt like after Thursday he was telling me, nope, you know, because I've been waiting, waiting to really get into the gospel with everybody. So um, that's why I felt like he told me. What I'm going to share with you today is very important to the gospel, but it's not the, the very, you know, in a box defined what is the gospel. The basic of the gospel is that God created mankind, mankind rebelled against their creator, therefore all were corrupt. They didn't maintain the level of glory that was required for them to continue in relationship with God. God was prepared for that to happen. So he sent an offering, his son Jesus, who then offered himself on the cross with all of, all of what that means. See, what we, what we see in the movie The Passion of the Christ is some of that. We see the flogging and we see the hanging on the cross and, and all the terrible physical pain and anguish that Jesus experienced for us. But what we can't understand is... What happened in all of that was the very wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ that we've earned. Every one of us, there's nobody, if you think, oh, you know, why is he telling me I'm so bad? It's, I'm not. God tells you through his, 
through his word. I need a Bible again. Through, through you know, my iPad, he tells us that we're all that way. Everybody. There's nobody. There's not one. Well, there's one. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Only one who didn't fall short of his glory. But because Jesus didn't fall short of his glory, he was able to offer himself as our high priest, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, to God on behalf of our sin. God accepted that offering as sufficient. We know that because the wage of sin is death. If there was no resurrection, we would have known Jesus had some sin and he wasn't accepted by God. But because of the resurrection, we know such that anybody who should place their faith in him can be righteous. They can go from unrighteous to righteous in Jesus Christ. If you would like to do that, I would explain to you how the gospel says to, how the Bible, God says to respond to that gospel and you too shall be saved. That's it. I just did it. There was the gospel. But the gospel without any context is very difficult because the problem that we have, oh, wait, I was going to tell you how to pray for me. Yeah, okay. Somebody hold that thought for me. No, I'm going to do it right now. Okay. So it's a weird way to start, but, but it's going to matter later. When all this started, um, especially this, because... It's been very difficult, and it's painful. It actually doesn't hurt right now. Yeah, yeah. You guys crack me up. Don't, you know, don't, don't pray for me, because I'll tell you how to pray. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> right. But if God, if God tells you how to pray, if he, if he sends you, then you go do it, right? And he can be working, you know, two sticks in the same fire, right? So, so it started, and it was uncomfortable, and it was painful, and it was messing with my sleep, and, you know, and then I go to the doctor, which, great wake-up call. Wow. Um, and I learned all this stuff that's not how it ought to be. And I prayed. I said, Lord, I prayed over myself to be healed and to be well. That the blood clot would be gone and the pain would go and the swelling would disappear and that all this whatever's going on with my kidneys and my blood pressure and all that stuff, Lord, take it from me. And he didn't. my sermon yet. Hold on. <laughs> I had a situation like this the first time that came about like this was, I think it was 2011 when we went to Mo, uh, Kenya to see Pastor Salido. And I, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I got a kidney stone. And I'm telling you, kidney stones are bad. They hurt a lot. And... Uh, I still didn't know what it was when we got home and that very Sunday, like I think we got home on Saturday preaching on Sunday and, and that thing would come and go. Like it would go from zero. You wouldn't know you had a kidney stone till you think you're going to die in less than 10 minutes. And it would be there for hours and then it would just dissipate in 10 minutes and it would go from terrible to not like better to nothing. I got, I got walked up on the stage. We were winding down the, the praise and worship time. And I felt that sucker coming on. And I started praying. I said, Lord, I asked you to take it away. I asked you to take the pain away. I mean, literally. I can't even be, well, if you had a kidney stone, you know. But I can't begin to explain to you how painful it was. But you didn't. I know you love me. And I know you're good. I know you can you, you, the word of your mouth, if you just called that thing to not exist anymore, I wouldn't have a kidney stone anymore, but you didn't. But Lord, if I've 
learned whatever it is that you're working in me through this trial, if I've, if I've got what it is that you're trying to get me to get, then take it away. I want to be done with it. I felt it coming on. It never came on. Never came back. It was gone. Right. So um, I prayed that he would take this away from me. And he didn't. It's not that he couldn't. It's that he didn't. So my prayer for this is that my faith won't waver. That he's developing perseverance for some purpose that he has for himself in me. And that, that I would not miss anything. That he, I don't think God did this. I don't think he gave me a blood clot. I don't think, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I did all the other stuff. Lifestyle, um, stupid, right? But I'm not praying for him to take the pain away, and I'm not praying for him to fix my blood pressure, and I'm not paying, praying for him to heal the thing. I'm asking him, Lord, don't, don't let any of this take me before I've accomplished everything that you had on your list. It's just today, Ben. If you ever come back, I promise you. (laughs) But, thanks. Only sissies need those. (laughs) That's my prayer. He let it happen. He loves me. If God is for you, who can be against you? Yet, I have all of that I just described to you. He's on my side. He loves me. He wants me to be like Jesus. And his word teaches me that sometimes stuff like this might happen so that he can get me prepared for whatever it is he's got down my path. So my prayer prayer ends with, Lord, don't wait one second past the time you got done what you want to get done. Take this all off of me. But not my will but your will be done. So when you pray for me, pray for me. Like last night I told you that I couldn't sleep and the pain, and I literally, I I, I remembered him telling me, I taught you how to deal with this. I didn't hear him say that, I just remembered it. And I started doing it. The problem is it's hard work. I just want to go to sleep. So I started to press in and do what he taught me to do. She thought I was asleep. <laughs> I rolled over or something, and, and she said something to me. Man, you were sleeping so good. I'm like, I'm not asleep. I can't go to sleep. But the pain is gone. And later, I mean a while later, I got out of bed. I went and sat in a chair. I got back into bed thinking I could go to sleep because the pain was gone again. This, but this time I didn't fight. I took a, I, I'm only allowed two. Dana's my pharmacist. I'm only allowed two once a day because of the kidney and the whatever all that is. I took one because I only had one by the back of the bed. When I got up to go in the chair, I took a second one from the bathroom. I sat down, I watched Bonanza on YouTube and some other stuff, and I noticed that my leg wasn't hurting at all. I'm like, this is the time to get back in bed. I couldn't get to sleep, so I got up again. Anyway, the point is, I, I didn't fight the second time. I took the ibuprofen. I didn't feel God was displeased with me. I just didn't have the energy to fight anymore. All of us should have the attitude. It's taken me a while to get it, really get it. 
I mean, I don't know the next trial comes how I'm going to get it, but that, that God loves us. And he's our dad. And he loves us. But he knows what we don't know. So we have to be careful not to try to go around the trial because the trial is uncomfortable. It's through the trial that we look like Jesus. Amen? Okay. You can do whatever you want. I just need comfort. <laughs> My side of the story. Honey, you sleeping? <laughs> if you're not sleeping, I could use some comfort over here. I well, need, you're getting comfortable. I need comfort. That's all I kept hearing. I need comfort. I mean, comfort I, me. I just want to... Um, this is a trial, but it's not just his. It's mine, too, obviously, because we're one. And so um, I just want to confess that, um, you know, at first Pat didn't want to go through any of the testing. He's just, he doesn't want to pay for any of it. And I'm like, you need to have the test. You need to have everything they want you to do, I want you to do. And he's like, you know, but we have to, you know, our deductible is $8,000 or whatever. And I'm like, we didn't know that Joe was going to die suddenly. We know something's going on with you, and I don't want to take the risk. I don't want to, you know. So I'm just confessing to you guys that this is scary. And I'm fighting fear tooth and nail. I know he's going to be okay because God's not done with us. But I have to be honest. We didn't expect, you know, Joe at 30 to die suddenly. Pat has a history uh, of his of bad blood, bad hearts, all this, you know, on his dad's side and his mom's side. So anyway, um, all that plays in my mind, and I just keep saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. It's all I can say. So... I'm just confessing that to you guys so you know how to pray for both of us um, and that he'll continue to do everything that he's supposed to do, which he's, I think this has been a pretty good wake-up call. Um, and, you know, to just get all our ducks in a row in order with everyone that we need to. Um, so, <laughs> Better get your affairs in order. <laughs> That's not what I mean, but it's, it is, you know, it's, it's like, let's not leave anything. Right. There's lots to do yet. There's There's souls that don't know Jesus. So anyway, I just wanted to share that. Disciples that aren't polished up all the way yet. Exactly. Amen. Okay. Amen. All righty. You might as well just keep that, you know. Okay. It's funny. You go to the doctor's office and the, the lady does your blood pressure. Can I just say when I called my friend, Dr. Gary? We bought the blood pressure thing. I told him all my blood pressure was. He said, ah, it might not be that bad. You have big arms. You should get the big blood pressure thing. That's the only good news I got all week. Anyway, she's like, yeah, we're going to do an EKG on you. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Before you decide to do an EKG on me, what does it cost? She's like, I don't know. We just do them, you know. I'm like, well, I, I'm not going to get a $1,000 bill from you because you didn't know. So she calls out to the ladies to do the billing and, or you know, opens the door. They're just right there. 
And like, hey, what do we charge for an EKG? And they're like, we don't know. I don't know. Just, you know. I'm like, you're not doing anything to me until I know what it's going to cost. Turns out it was 37 bucks. <laughs> I said, oh, hey, you know, let me check. 37 bucks. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, right. Hey, right. I might not make it, but I'm not leaving my wife poor. All righty, stop it. Let's go. Context. I think the gospel, the outcome of the gospel is better with context than without context. So, so if a person says, hey, are you ready to get right with God? And maybe you give them some sense for that they're going to go and burn in hell. Are you ready to get right with God? And they say, yeah. And you say, okay, repeat after me. They might actually say the gospel right. And that person might actually respond to the gospel right. But without some context, and this is easy for me to say because I didn't know Jesus at all, right? When I started going to church, he could have been Buddha, he could have been Allah, he could have been anybody. I didn't know anything about him. So I could have responded emotionally to the gospel and maybe actually somehow got saved if it was truly the gospel. But there's so much context that if you understand the context, when you respond to the gospel, the likelihood that you'll actually be a disciple and not just somebody who prayed a prayer is dramatically different. So I want to start, not that any of you, I mean, today I'm going to talk about God. You know, just think a minute about describing God. God is infinite. He's God, right? He's greater than us. He's, he's the, the train of his, his robe, his, his kingly robe is continuously filling the temple in heaven. It's not like there's an end to his robe. When we go to heaven, I think the coolest part about heaven is going to be God's glory. We can't even, we can't even comprehend God's glory in this corrupted state. Now, our spirits are not corrupted anymore, but if we were to be given any real measure of God's glory, we would die. I think when we get to heaven the best part of heaven is going to be the glory of God. And that's why we'll praise and worship all the time because we'll see another facet of his glory and it'll just wreck us. So I'm positive I'm not going to do an outstanding job of describing God to you, who you already know him. But understand that I'm doing this in the context of the, of, of or in, for the purpose of context when we share the gospel with other people. And I'm just going to tell you up front, my picture of God is not perfect. It's how I see him, I'm not, I don't think is untrue, but I think it's filtered by how I see him. From my person, I'm, I'm very much um, conscious of, of people telling other people maybe the word is selling and not telling other people about God in such a manner that in their flesh, in the way, in worldly wisdom, because they want people to want God. So let's don't tell them about the vengeful God and the wrathful God. And, you know, we'll just, we'll just leave that bait off the hook right now. Otherwise, they won't bite. But at the end of the day, if they bite on some little portion of God and then they find out later who God really is, 
will they have bitten hard enough to actually stay on the hook? It's a weird metaphor. Stay on the hook until they're all the way reeled in, which would be when you finish the race, when you finish this life, when you actually receive the crown of life, which is, says, hey, to the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not to the one that started out strong and then they found out stuff and they're like, ugh, and they drifted away. Read the parable of the seed in the soil. In Well, it's in all three synoptic gospels, but the best, the, the part, I, the one I like the best is Mark uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Anyway, it's important that we present the gospel in the context of why even there is a gospel. Okay. I went uh, to the dictionary and, and asked the dictionary to tell me who God is. And it was actually a pretty good, you know, they're just a dictionary. They're not, they're not the Bible dictionary necessary, necessarily. And, and here's what it said. The creator and ruler of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. Now, the dictionary isn't going to be any better than I am to describe to you an infinite God, but that's not a bad foundation to start with. He's the creator. If he's the creator, then everything else is the created. Part of everything else is us. If we think that we are the result of molecular, you know, once in a quintillion billion chance, then our relationship to this God is very different than he made me. He has an ownership position. He has a, um, a manufacturer, I don't know what the right word is, but, but that changes how we see him if we understand that, that he's creator of everything that is. The second word it used was ruler. He's the ruler over everything. So, so you can think that you're the ruler of your life, but you're not. You could be a Christian or you could not be a Christian. You could be an atheist, but at the end of the day, you are not the ruler of your life. There's only one person who ultimately is going to punch your ticket, and that's God. Nobody else. Not the least of which is you. I mean, you know, I'm using you loosely here, not necessarily any of you, but, but before I knew Jesus, and then even for a while afterwards, because I didn't have much context, I was the ruler of the world, at least as it related to me. But I was deceived because sooner or later I'm going to stand before the one who is the ruler and I'm going to be judged unto my righteousness or my lack of righteousness and he'll decide my outcome. He's ruler. Third thing is he's the source of all moral authority. Boy, I'll tell you what, if there was ever a time and probably there's been a thousand times like this, but if there was ever a time to see how confused the creation is over moral authority, it's right now. Where do you get... This is what I, I tell my, uh, my daughters, like, you know, when they would be rebellious or they would have an idea what their life was going to look like. It's like, no, I'll tell you what your life's going to look like. Turns out I wasn't the ruler. But, Dad, your ways are too harsh. You're too strict. You're this. I say, hey, listen, I don't have any ways. I pray that I never have a way. I don't want an original thought. I seriously don't. I look to the Scriptures... And it tells me how to think, and that's how I want to think. That's, that's, well, Dad, you know, we love each other. Why can't we, you know what? You're not married. Right, but so what? I said, no, no, no. That's not my morals. 
well, okay, but it's my morals. I'm like, well, yeah, but you get your morals from you. I don't get my morals from me. There's only one moral authority in all of creation, and it's God. And he defines for me what's moral and what's immoral, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. Well, you got too many rules. It's like, hey, listen, you know, you could fill out a card and send it to heaven. I don't make up any of this stuff. It's hard for me to, to follow it sometimes. I, I, you know, sometimes I just want to... Yeah, right. Yeah. He is the absolute moral authority. And anybody who wants to define morality outside of his morality, if they don't repent, they will figure out who the ruler is. Amen. And the final one they said was supreme being. So I'm talking to somebody about the gospel. But I want them to understand when, when you ultimately do this thing that's called responding to the gospel because you recognize that you have a future that's called the eternal wrath of God, that you understand what it is that you're actually doing. You're not saying a prayer. You're making a decision, and then you're making a public statement according to that decision. And then you're going to join the family of the body of God who is going to expect you to stand up to what you said you were going to stand up to. Isn't that beautiful, right? Because sometimes you mess up. Sometimes I mess up. And somebody will tell me. And then I have to decide, you can't tell me that. Or praise God that you put somebody that could see where I couldn't see. Right? Okay. Creator, ruler, source of all moral authority, supreme being. So I try to break this up in sort of topics, but this stuff just all goes everywhere. So I'll, I'll try to lump them together best I can. The, the first word that I would use to kind of lump this first batch together is that he is sovereign. Sovereign is a tough concept for us because we, we want to be sovereign. You, you can't tell me what to do. You know, this is a free country. It's not a free country. Well, <laughs> I, I, don't recognize, I don't recognize it much right now, but it's not a free country. There's legislation, like there is God's moral authority, that indicates what you can and can't do. It's free in many senses, but it's not free like you can just do what you want. To be sovereign means that whatever you do is right. It's all right. So you see... I think it's the Ammonites, I don't know, it's the somebody's in the Old Testament, and God sends them out, and he's like, kill them all. Kill the men, kill the women, kill the children, kill the babies, kill all the animals. All of it. And that rubs up against our personal morality. It's like, whoa. Or do you, how many times do you hear this? I can't, I can't submit myself to a God that would allow this world to be how it is. It's like if he fixed it, you'd be the first one to go. <laughs> I know. Because he decreed it, it was righteous. And someday we'll know as we're known. And we'll say amen to that. But until we can get to that place, 
until we can know what he knows, then we say amen to him. Okay? He's sovereign. He's right. That's why when Kennard messes with me, I actually mess with him the same way. But it's like, so Pat, you know, Leviticus 7.14, do you agree with that scripture? And what he's hoping is I'm going to open my Bible. Because I don't know what Leviticus 7.14 is. I have no idea, right? He knows I have no idea. But the answer is, of course I do. I agree with it all. I agree with the table of contents. I agree with the names of the books. I agree with the genealogies. I agree with all of it. Because I've surrendered myself to the Bible. You, you told me, through the Lord told me through you a couple weeks ago, how pleased or how happy he is with my passion for the scriptures. I hold on to the scriptures until my fingers fall off. Because the minute I let go of the scriptures, I get to be God. Right? Yeah. Amen. Okay. So sovereign. That's a sense for sovereign. Let me read you some scriptures. I'll try not to be so long. Let me, hear, let, let me tell you what it says about sovereign, at least a little bit. Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. There's nothing that he's not sovereign over. There's no, there's no corner of the universe that God is like, yeah, you know, I'm not sovereign over that. If it exists, he's sovereign over it. Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, God... Disciplining his people, the ten tribes of Israel that were called Judah, took them into bondage through Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So they they get over there into Babylon. Um, Jerusalem is laid waste. Judea is a mess. Hardly anybody left. And the king Nebuchadnezzar picks out the, the shiniest, smartest, of the Israelites and brings them into a process to get them ready to be part of his circle of advisors and whatnot. One of those is Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't understand the dream, so he calls all his, you know, dream interpreters, and and they're scared because he says, not only do I want the interpretation of the dream, I want you to tell me what the dream is. And they're like, we can't. And he's like, well, then kill them all. Somehow Daniel gets word, and Daniel's God is different than the Babylonian gods. And they know it, right? So Daniel says, hey, I will tell you the dream and interpret it. This is Daniel interpreting that dream over King Nebuchadnezzar, who I think the Bible is saying God has given Nebuchadnezzar basically sovereignty over the world. Like, you you get to be the king of the world. You're the most powerful guy in the world. This is what... The interpretation was. Daniel chapter 4, verse 24. It starts in the middle of the sentence is why I wanted to give you some context. This is the interpretation, O king, Daniel speaking, to Nebuchadnezzar. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, little L, Lord, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you. So basically, God is going to take his grace away from Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to, he's going to become like an animal. They're going to put him out to pasture. His fingernails are going to get to be two feet long. And he's going to eat like a cow eats in the field. He's going to lay on the ground and the dew of the morning is going to make him wet. For a period of time that God has decreed. So, And seven periods of time will pass over you 
until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he, whomever he wishes. So God wants Nebuchadnezzar to get on the ball. And, and Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is God. And God says, no, you're not. He gave him a dream, crazy dream. I don't understand the dream. Daniel tells him the dream and what the dream is about, and then it happens. So that Nebuchadnezzar will, will understand that he's not God, that God is God. He's the only God. And, and that Nebuchadnezzar must humble himself before that God. That's pretty sovereign. Romans nine fourteen through 24. What will, she, what will we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Sorry, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I, God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Why? Because he's sovereign, and he can. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay? To make from some lump, from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So you're talking to somebody who, who's a secular person. They're a worldly person. Their wisdom is demonic. Their God is themselves. And you're going to have them pray a prayer. And they're going to respond. And they might pray the prayer. But they don't understand who they're surrendering. Who they're, Margie talked about it in worship. Worship is to humble yourselves. To put yourself down on the ground before God and say, not my will, but your will, Lord. I'm just, I'm just clay in your hands for whatever purpose you choose. And if you decide that you're going to perfect me as a piece of clay, and it takes squeezing and pushing and making my leg hurt, and all, you know, I can't eat any good food anymore, then I praise you, God. Because I'm not you, and you're me. You're the creator and I am the created. See, if someone doesn't understand that, then their relationship with God is going to start from a place where it's going to be very difficult for them to actually worship Him and serve Him and love Him because He will demand of them things that they won't want to give Him. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. First Timothy six thirteen through 16 I charge you, Timothy, or excuse me, Paul to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
which he will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, there's only one sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I don't even need to comment on that one. Revelation 4 and 11. Worthy are you, our Lord, and our God. Let me stop for just a second. You see that more than once in the New Testament, where someone is speaking to God, and he he identifies him as both Lord and God. Now, by definition of being God, he is Lord. But he's a Lord that you can rebel against until the chickens come to roost, in which case then you're going to be compensated for your rebellion. But he is both Lord and God. Lord indicates a relationship. Lord says, if he's Lord, I'm not. It's king and subject. It's master and slave. It's the one who has dominion, the one who does not have dominion. Lord and God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So there's nothing that exists. There's no tree, there's no planet, there's no star, there's no space dust, there's no man, there's no woman, there's no giraffe, there's no rock except for that he had a will that it would. Joseph is the will of God, or Joey, excuse me. Uh, yeah, sorry, you know, do you think I'd be good with that one? Joey is the will of God. We know, because it just told us there, there's nothing that existed outside of his will. You're the will of God. He chose you, just, I mean, this is a, a rabbit trail, but, but you tell Carmen when you see him that he's God's. Joey is God's. And you have a steward... I'm pointing again. And, and No, it's not. My wife told me. Um, what you have is a son, right? And you're his parents, and he's to honor you. But what you have beyond that is a stewardship. God has placed him in your care to bring him up to look like Jesus. Okay. Done with the Dory Trail. Revelation 4, I created all things. God created everything. It's all his. This is off of sovereign, but it all still has to do with sovereign. Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Vengeance belongs to God. We see in Romans 12, verse 19, speaking to the church, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, there's, there's a concept of Daddy God that you might not get from somebody who only talks about Daddy God. He loves you so much. Jacob, did you know? He loves you so much. He wants to bless you. Woo! It's all true. He does. He loves you so much. You don't have to wonder about that. He's a vengeful God. If you don't love him back, and, he, and if you do me wrong, God's like, hey, listen, 
If you pay him back, Pat, then I don't get to pay him back. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll do it better than you. I'll do it justly. You prob- I probably would not do it justly. Right? So, so there's, a, there's a knowing of God that has to do with vengeance. And like, don't you take, don't you take my vengeance. It's not like you know, God has some sick pleasure. But if he did, he's sovereign, right? But vengeance belongs to him. Psalm 89, 14. Descriptors of God. There's a million descriptors of God. You could find more in your Bible. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Now this is the psalmist speaking of God. The, the essence of the gospel, the foundation of the essence of the gospel is righteousness and justice. You'll see that. You might know it already, but you'll see it. I'll describe it to you as we go along in this series of however many talks it's going to be. Righteousness and justice. Where there is no righteousness, there has to be justice. There will always be justice for no righteousness. There's some scriptures that kind of speak to relationship between man and God to help us to have a, a perspective as we would enter into relationship with him. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 4. A command. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. And you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Now that's Deuteronomy. That's Old, Old Testament stuff. So God's probably different now because we got Jesus and Jesus is much nicer than the Father and, and you know, we, we're okay from that. But we're not. It's not. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday. He's the same right now. And he'll always be the same for all of eternity. And if the right way to have a relationship with him, with him is to follow him, follow the Lord your God. If the right way to have a relationship with him is to fear him, to keep his commandments, to listen to his voice, to serve him, and to cling to him, that's the truth forever. That's how we should live our lives in relationship with Him. Following Him, fearing Him, keeping His commandments, listening to His voice, serving Him, and clinging to Him for fear that we might let go. Because see, you don't have to worry about God letting go of you. His, his strength is never going to waver. But sometimes our faith will waver and we might not cling to Him anymore. We might get offended at God. We might want to have a word to God so He understands better. It turns out in the Bible, there is a guy like that. And you know what that guy was described as? Like the most righteous guy on the earth. His name was Job. Job was so blessed by God. I mean, he had a great family, lots of kids. He owned like cattle and sheep. I don't know what all his riches were, but he was highly respected because he was so, had so much stuff. He understood where that stuff came from. He was very careful in his relationship with God. Every once or whatever, his kids would get together and they would have a party. And then he, Job would pray to God that in case they did anything that they shouldn't have done at that party, that you know God would be graceful and merciful towards them. And then the world of Job went to hell in a handbasket. You know the story of Job, right? I won't, I won't tell you the whole story of Job, but in this... In this um, back and forth banter that goes on through what feels like 90% of Job, you know, his buddies come to talk with him and they're like, well, you're just a sinner. That's why this happened to you. And he's like, I'm not a sinner. 
I'm a righteous guy. And they're like, no, you're not. And he's like, yes, I am. And they say, well, no, you're not. Yes, I am. And they go back and forth all the time. Lots of chapters. And Job says, and when I get, when I get an audience with God, I'm going to straighten him out. I, I am going to explain to him why him doing or allowing this to happen to me is all goofed up. Turns out he got the opportunity. Didn't go exactly like Job thought it might. Two courses of scripture from Job. First is chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. See, this is, this is the guy who the Bible describes as righteous, having an interaction with God. It's good we should know that, right? We're probably not in the place to judge God. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Guess who the fault finder is? Job. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. See, Job was a righteous guy. He was the best of the best. But compared to God, he he was so insignificant. He didn't even fall on the scale of measuring God. He thought he had the right to an opinion. But he didn't have a right to an opinion to speak against God. And once he had some revelation, his answer to God was, okay, here's your opportunity. You straighten me out. He's like, just in case he might not be able to control his mouth, he put his hand over it to make sure it was getting a little extra help, right? And then in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, again, he's speaking with the Lord. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Best is to not ever bring a complaint about God to God. If you do, best is to repent. I just read you my note. Job thought he knew God. They were, they, Job and God, were related such that Job got a vote. And he did. God, God let him vote. He gave him the opportunity. and He withheld his vote. He didn't punch that punch card, right? That he could have an opinion that he could rebuke God, but he said, now my eyes have seen you. Result, I repent in dust and ashes. Psalm 47 Oh, I don't think I did this one right. I meant to clip it out, but I didn't clip it out. So not the whole thing of 2 through 8, but 2 and 8. So you don't need to look up here. I'll just tell you. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. God, now we're at verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. He's most high. There's nobody higher than God. He's to be feared. You can call it reverence if you want. The Bible does, you know, some translations. But you, you should have a good, healthy dose of fear for God. And you should be reverent towards him. 
he reigns over the nations, right? Well, what if I'm Saudi Arabia and I don't believe in that guy? doesn't matter what they believe. He'll, he'll turn them loose. He'll send missionaries. They'll cut off their heads. But he reigns over them. He's going to punch their tickets, every one of them. Those kings that are trillionaires, enjoy it now. Or repent and enjoy it forever. You'll be familiar with this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is like the, the poster child scripture for the Great Commission. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does that sound like? That sounds like sovereign to me. All authority. Well, what about this authority? No, no, all authority. But what about Satan? No, no, all authority. What about my free will? Yeah, no, all authority. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. So all authority everywhere. Because of that, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I, Jesus, commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there's commands in here. The first command is to make disciples. Jesus, and we'll talk about this, in the like, remember I told the lady, count the cost? Don't make a decision today because you, you're not ready to make a decision yet today. Because you don't know what God will ask of you if you take salvation in the name of his son. The only name it's given in, right? So so you need to count the cost. We need to have that conversation before you make that decision. Jesus speaks specifically to what it takes to be his disciple. What's the surrender? You You have to... Your love and devotion to Jesus has to make the love and devotion you have for baby Joey and each other look like hate in comparison. Right? I'm going to talk about this another week, but think about Abraham's devotion to God. Take your son, your only son, the son of the promise, Isaac, and walk him up on this mountain and sacrifice him to me. Isaac, we're going for a hike. Come on. Right to the point we was ready to drop that knife into Isaac's chest. He didn't say, God, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. He did what God told him to do. And God said, I was testing you, and now I know that you fear me. You wonder what devotion God is looking for? Jesus said that. That devotion looks like hate. If you want to have your life, you have to lose it. What do you mean? Well, your life. You know, that which that you enjoy that what you want to do, any will that you have that deviates from my will, you got to lose it. You, you can't have any other. Well, what if I don't want to do that? Well, then, then you're not my disciple. You can't be my disciple. Unless you set your mind such that you understand. Well, if I just walked up to you and said, you know, you're going to burn in hell because you're a sinner, I'm looking past you, Dana. I'm looking at the wall. And, and, and you could convince somebody that that was true. What, what should I do? Right? That's what happens in the book of Acts when... Day of Pentecost, and Peter is preaching, and they're, they're like the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit hit those people, and they cry out, what must we do? And he explained it to them. But if they don't understand what God expects of them before they're called to do it, they might never be called to do it, who knows? But if they don't accept it and understand it and set that thing as a foundation of their relationship with God, are you going to get a disciple out of that? Maybe, but it's not going to be how it ought to be. 
He said to baptize them. There's no function of baptism that's required for salvation. So what's important in baptism? What's important in baptism is that's where the person actually declares, I have no life of my own. I'm dead. I exist only for the will of God. And I'm going to show you by demonstration, declaring to the world. That's why somebody say, hey, can you just baptize me by myself? It's like, no chance. There's no way I will baptize you. Because somebody has to see you make that statement. Because when you deviate from that statement, somebody's got to come and hold you accountable. So I'm declaring to the world in baptism that I'm dead, but I'm resurrected in life, and that life is in Christ Jesus. Baptize them. And then the last thing he says is teach them to obey. Well, I thought he loved me. Can't I just? No, you can't. Could I be saved if I disobey him in some sense? Yes. But the position of your heart is to obey his commands. Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. 11, 50. 9, 30, 10, 30. 11, 30, 11, 50. My leg don't hurt at all. If, you're, if you guys are worried that I might stop early because my leg hurts, it feels great. 8 through 11. God speaking to us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, excuse me, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Here's the part. Well, here's the next part. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Oftentimes when I pray for someone who has a need, you know, they're on their deathbed or, or they don't know how their bills are going to get paid or, or they got a, a, a blood clot in their leg, I say, God, if you speak the word, it's done. If it comes forth from your mouth, it cannot. Somebody wake Steve up. It cannot. Sorry, I'm just messing with you. You can get me next week. You it cannot return to him void. Do you understand that? If God chooses to speak, what he speaks will happen. Guaranteed, absolutely. Why is that? Because he's sovereign. Why is that? Because he has authority over heaven and earth. If he tells the fig tree to be cursed, and then later in the day he's walking home past the fig tree and it's withered, it's because he has authority over the fig tree. If he says, peace be still to the storm, and all of a sudden the wind stops and the waves go down, why is that? Because he's sovereign. And he is, a, if he, right now, he, could, he is. He's saying thunder, and when we all get to hear it, it's because nature is obligated to obey him. So if he says, matter of fact, probably that's when it'll be gone. He'll say it. That, that thing can't be there. There's nothing that will keep it there. Because his word will not return back to him having not accomplished what it was sent out to do. Why? Because he's sovereign. Everything has to do what he says to do. All of us.
couple more. These ones, you know, these ones, the people, when you're talking to them, they're going to like these a little bit better. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. I didn't have time to fix this one either. 4, 7, 8, 4, 7, 8 and 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. What is that? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? There's a sense of love that that an unbeliever, an unregenerate person, I love my wife, I love my girlfriend, I love ice cream, I love. But they don't. Unless it's from God, the love that he gives. Hmm. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We'll talk about propitiation later. Love is from God. If you love somebody, it's because God gave it to you. And God's very nature is love. Now, you need to ask God to define love for you, and he does in the scriptures, because our sense for love is, is oftentimes very different than what his true love is. Romans eight thirty eight and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can hang your head on it. Amen. You can stop loving him, but there's no created thing. He speaks to demons. He speaks to all these different things right here. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. But that love is qualified. Look, is it up there? Look at that last sentence. Separate us from the love of God. What's it say next? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the love that he's talking about is the love that he has for the church. That particular love. Because it's qualified by in Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting. At the beginning of that, let me, I'll move on. We used to sing a song at the Freedom Center with Pastor Ben was the worship pastor there. Very expressive, you know, um, draw you in and get you going kind of a guy. And the song was, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. We all were so happy. We're God's friend. It's beautiful. Nice song. Everybody sings it. But but there's no context in that song, right? So in... I moved the scriptures around. There, there's, a, there's a scripture that Jesus addresses his followers at that time as friends. So we know that he sees them as friends. But then in John 15 and verse 14, he qualifies friendship. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I am a friend of God. And my adulterous girlfriend, too. And, you know, it's like, no, you're not. You're his friend. He calls you a friend when you live according to his precepts. And teach them to observe all that I commanded you. You can be God's friend. But there's a context to friendship with God. I'm thinking the new guy ain't coming back after that last little bit. I don't know. Well, yeah, it could be either, seriously. John 1, 9 through 13, this is a powerful one. 
There was the true light, capital L, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I, I think I talked about this here in the last few Sundays. The Greek word behind gave them the right is exousia. It, it's primarily translated as authority. They were authorized. So Jesus came to his people, the Jews. I was sent for the Jews, but they didn't receive him. But whoever did receive him became authorized to have a relationship with God where you could actually call him father, that he would see you as son. So there's a relational thing with God that happens through Jesus Christ that makes you then family with God. People can know God. They can know of God. We're all God's children. It's like, well, in some sense you could argue that's true. We're all his creation. We're all made in his image. But only those who would receive his son in the manner that the gospel prescribes have been given the authorization to call God Father. That's good that you should know that if you're going to pray that prayer, right? Friends of Jesus, children of God. You could be God's friend, Jesus' friend. You could be God's daughter. Awesome. Let's do that. Okay, pray this prayer. Oh, wait a minute. There's some conditions on that. Okay. The reason we share the gospel. I I can see the end. (laughs) You could tell me a hundred reasons. I'll give you a reason. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you to whom to fear. Excuse me, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Somebody's going to kill you, Christian. I mean, I don't really want to be killed, but, but at the end of the day, I don't need to fear death. Because death has no hold on me. Why? Because it has no hold on him. Why? Because I'm in him. So if whoever that person is chooses to kill me, they can take away this, you know, pretty messed up body, and I'll get an eternal one. Well, not right this second necessarily, but I'll get an eternal body, and I'll be forever with my God. I won't have a chance to mess it up, right? The one you fear is not the one who's going to kill you. You fear the one who can kill you, but can damn you eternally out of his presence to his wrath. Fear him. Why? Because he will judge all of mankind and every man and woman should be fearful for their eternal outcome. That's a good reason to get saved, right? Why again? Hear me now. Because he, God, is just. It is not his friendship and it is not his love. It's not his friendship and it's not his love that will determine your eternal destination. Those are wonderful things. Because of his love, you have the opportunity to be with him eternally. 
Well, if God loves me, he wouldn't ever let me go to hell. Well, I beg to differ. On what authority do you make that statement? What do you mean? What's the authority that makes what you just said, God loves me, he would never let me go to hell? What's your authority? Well, that's just what I believe. It's like, well, if you want to hang your hat on that peg, go ahead. But my guess is your hat's going to end up on the floor. Okay, Pat, then what's your authority? The Word of God, the Scriptures teach me that God loves me, but his love is not what's going to determine my outcome. It gives me the opportunity. Your righteousness. Remember I said just and righteous were going to be big deal. They're like the foundation. Because he is just, <laughs> he will judge mankind, all of mankind, and every man and woman should be fearful for their eternal outcome. Why? Because God is just. It is not his friendship and it is not his love that will determine your eternal destination. Your righteousness is what will measure. Your righteousness is what he will measure. And if any unrighteousness be found in you, he will cast you into hell for all of eternity. What about sin? What about sin? Sin is just unrighteousness. You become unrighteous because you sin. See, the judgment that God will make to every man or woman is righteous or unrighteous. Righteous? Join me. Unrighteous? Away from me, you doers of iniquity. You practicers of lawlessness. Send them off to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, am I righteous or not? You're not. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me you're not. Nobody. One. The Son of Man. Jesus Christ. Righteous. Nobody else. That I'm, I almost said Scrooge. I don't have a hope. Well, you do have a hope. What's that? Remember I said we'd talk about propitiation later? There's someone who will give you his righteousness. That's the gospel. And you can stand before God and all of your sins will be read before you except all of your sins don't matter to your righteousness. Jesus Christ matters to your righteousness. That's why you share the gospel. Because people believe all kind of crazy stuff that has no authority to make it true. But the Bible says that if you are unrighteous, you're damned. You're already under the wrath of God. And if you're righteous, you're saved. But what if I don't behave righteously? Well, you should behave righteously, but that's not how your righteousness is measured. Your righteousness is propitiated to you to satisfy God. It's the very righteousness of Christ himself. Remember uh, Hebrews 10.31 we read, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Understanding all that is why I pray for my stuff the way I pray for my stuff. Because for me to just pray, God, heal me, would be to ignore what he might be doing in me. So I prayed it. Because he might not be doing anything in me. I might just be messed up. And I want him to fix it. And he can and he has. But he didn't. So then my next question is, why didn't he? What can I glean from the scriptures to help me to understand why the God who loves me, the God who's for me, the God who, don't forget his benefits, the God who heals all your diseases, who's taken your sickness, your pain, your sorrow, and his, your infirmities upon himself has left them with me. Why? The scripture says, why did he send Abraham up on the mountain with Isaac? To test him. What is he doing with me? He's testing me. He's shaping me. He's molding me. He's working the clay of my person to look like 
his son. That's why. So when I said I was weird that I would start with this, it's, it's because I want you to see. I'm not telling you I'm the most wonderful Christian in the world, but, I, but I've, I've learned some stuff, and I've committed to some stuff. So as much as I wish my leg would stop, it's not hurting right now. You guys did a great job. As much as I wish, you know, in my flesh, that's not important to me eternally. What's important to me eternally is that I would be completely conformed to Christ and completely available to God for every good work that he has for me to do. And this is what it takes. Amen? Amen. 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 Okay, so back to the context of the gospel. When we share the gospel, we should try to help people to understand who they are and who God is and, and why they don't have an eternal relationship with God because they're unrighteous. And, and what relationship with God looks like so that when they make that decision, they'll be deciding to be a disciple. And they'll be deciding that if he doesn't fix your leg and you can't sleep at night, that you say, praise God, I consider it all joy. Not because it hurts and I can't sleep. I don't, I don't like that. But I like what God's doing with it that's going to develop in me perseverance. And, and that is going to then work in me maturity and perfection so that I might be ready for anything that he has me to do. That's a transformed and renewed mind in that area. You know, there's some areas that I'm still working on, but that's an area. Okay, all right. Okay, well, 1206. I'll let you just, well, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't let you decide anything. I got the microphone. I would like us to spend a few minutes in prayer. I, I'm going to try, honestly, I'm going to try to make these so much shorter. I don't make any promises because it, I've been actually trying. <laughs> But I would like us to pray again like we did last week. We come to church as the church, the body of Christ, and we spend our time singing praises. Awesome. We, we, we disciple through the word. Awesome. But we need to pray because he's counting on us to call on him to bring about his will.